this is the way I, I sort of imagine the, the Zohar. It's it always, and when I read it, it, it looks like a Western movie. It's like spaghetti mysticism. Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast, exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, this is Eric, and I am here today with Dr. Justin Sledge, a professor of philosophy focusing on the intersection of philosophy and esotericism. He's especially interested in the suppression of hermetic philosophy in the Western philosophical canon. Uh, Dr. Sledge studied at the University of Amsterdam's Center for the Study of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents, and then followed that by getting a PhD in philosophy. Welcome, Dr. Justin Sledge. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I've been really enjoying your uh, new YouTube channel, Esoterica, um, which you know I think I saw it and I watched like thirty seconds of an episode and immediately was like, I gotta I gotta get this guy on my podcast. And I think I I contacted you before I'd even finished watching any of your stuff uh, because you know you're your presence and the stuff you're talking about and just the list of topics was just so amazing. So first of all, thank you for making that. Absolutely. You know, uh, part of the, the task of this uh, YouTube channel is to, is to get information, to get scholarly information about uh, esotericism out there. I, I, um, my experience of the information is it's really uneven. There's a lot of really good stuff and a lot of really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really want to just put, information out there that says, look, this is where the scholarship is. Um, I hope it's useful to casual observers and I hope it's useful for ritual practitioners. Um, so I hope the channel is, is resourceful uh, on both sides of that, both sides of that equation. Yeah. From what I've seen so far, it is, um, very resourceful for that. And one of the really nice things about it is, um, your episodes are fairly bite-sized. So they aren't like an hour and a half long. They range, I think from like 15 to 40 minutes and, uh, it makes them much easier to digest. And, um, so, you you know, we, we don't forget about what you were talking about at the beginning by the time we get to the end. (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, you know, I think when we imagine esoteric tomes or tomes of magic, right? They're these gigantic Necronomicon, you know, eight hundred thousand pages long uh, uh, texts. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that the task, uh, the task of putting this information out in a popular way, is to take that down to bite-sized nuggets mm-hmm. without stripping the complexity and the nuance, um, but present it. You know, like I said, like you said, in in a you know fifteen to thirty minute talk and i think that one can do that and i think that the task of the channel is to uh give people bite-sized nuggets to whet their appetite to go you know if i make an episode about the the greek magical papyri uh i don't want them to i don't want folks just to watch my episode i want them to go read the greek magical papyri uh and or go read the monas hieroglyphica or go read hildegarda bingen or whatever so it's uh it's more of a, a springboard for curiosity rather than something that's meant to exhaustively satisfy that curiosity as if I could do that. 
That is an excellent approach. Um, so uh, I'm really excited to have you on today because we're going to talk about uh, Kabbalah and in particular uh, the Sefer HaZohar, which is, um, I guess you could call it one of the foundational texts of uh, what Kabbalah turned into or what modern Kabbalah is or I don't know. How would you, what's your Zohar elevator pitch? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would say that uh, Kabbalah, as we know it, uh, is the the response to the Zohar. It, it's the it's the accumulation of of responses to this uh, monumental library. Really, I, I, when I think of the Zohar, I think it's important not to think of the Zohar as one book, uh, but to think of it as a library. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, Gershom Sholem, uh, the famous uh, uh, scholar of Kabbalah, uh, even broke the text down into uh, 24 different major subsections. He did. Um, and so you're talking about, and those 24, subsect- 24 subsections um, are, are really different from each other. They really are. In fact, I would say they even represent different forms of mysticism. Uh, not all 24, uh, but so... I think the way to think about the Zohar is that it's a library, not a book. And, and, yeah. and, and Kabbalah is the response to that library. Okay. So, um, so the Zohar, uh, you know, 24 different subsections, um, and it's enormous. Like, uh, I don't know how people normally count it, like how many words it is or something like that. But, um, you know, the, the uh, Pritzker translation, the the most recent um, English sort of critical translation of it is, you know, 13 volumes. And it doesn't include the two major works that are included in the Kabbalah, which are the uh, Raya Mahimna and the Tikkun Zohar. And those are actually included, that's just two major volumes that aren't even translated by Matt. Yeah. So yeah. I was, uh, I was disappointed about the, uh, the Tikkun Zohar because... Um, it's it's referenced a lot by uh, uh, Cordovero. Yeah. And when I was reading um, one of Cordovero's works, I was really excited when there were parts of the Zohar that I could go reference. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he just, he mostly was referencing the, the Tukane Zohar. And I, mm-hmm. there's not even, uh, I mean, there's, I don't think there's a full English translation of it anywhere. No, there, there's not. Um Actually, uh, I, I had the opportunity to study with uh, with uh, Daniel Matt, who who is a, a, a is a brilliant mind and a gentle soul. Uh, he's just a, a an absolute pleasure of a, a person to be around. Um, and uh, I was studying Zohar with him, and he's amazing. He you know he just he's like if we're going to study Zohar, we're going to study Zohar, and he just cracks open the Aramaic and just starts reading. <laughs> you know just. You know, uh, at any rate, I asked him, uh, you know, are you going to translate the Tukune Zohar and the Raya Mahimna? Uh, and he, and he, he looked at me, uh, and he, he sort of reached out his hands and he says, haven't I done enough? <laughs> like, you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get that impression, you get that impression reading, you know I mean? So his, his translation, so he did the first, I think, uh, nine or ten volumes, and then some some others took over for him to finish to finish it up. Right. And um, one of the reasons it's thirteen volumes long is that each page is like half footnotes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's what it takes to translate this text. 
Yeah, but it's uh, they're also super helpful footnotes because he digs up all kinds of references and all kinds of, um, you know, scripture that you wouldn't have thought to look at or, you know, stuff that I, I think in particular stuff that you lose the context for when it's taken out of the, the original language. Uh, so it's it's impressive. I would advise um, everybody to take out a small loan and uh, get all thirteen volumes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I would go that far. You know, it's funny. My when my wife and I got married, uh, we were going having the you know the most important debate one can have when one gets married, uh, and that's what goes on the registry. Um, so <laughs> what, what are we going to ask people for? And uh, I was like, I'm asking them for Daniel Matz, Zohar. I want the whole thing. Um, so I've, I've studied the Zohar, uh, I've studied the Zohar for years in, uh, in the original and, uh, it's such a mountain to climb in the original. And I've looked at you know, sections of Matt's translations as I've taught it and as I've read it. Uh, and I was like, I just need the whole thing. I'm tired of having a piece here and a piece there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, eventually you got it on the registry and she, every time someone would buy it, we could see the little click, the little, little thing, letting us know someone bought something. She's like, they didn't buy the dishes. They bought the damn Zohar. <laughs> Did you ever come to a point where you're like, oh, they've, they've got all the volumes except the last one. We need to invite more people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I need volume eight. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, so they got the whole thing. So, um, um, but yeah, it, it's a monumental, it's a monumental work of scholarship. I, I uh, translators, uh, translators get short shrift. You know, I, I worked in translation and archive work when I was doing uh, work at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, one of the phrases that you never hear ever is, uh, this is such a good translation. <laughs> yeah. You never, you never hear that. You always hear, this is what this person gets wrong in their translation. This is how this translation is bad. This is how this, uh, translators are the most important, some of the most important people in, in, in the history of, uh, of the history of wisdom. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you go to ask people, name five famous translators. Pico della Mirandola. Yeah. No, Ficino. Okay, I got two. Yeah, Ficino, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but if you if you do, you start doing the, you know, the the crunching, most people can't name. It's a thankless task. Oh, it uh, is, yeah. And Daniel Matt's translation of Zohar is, is a monumental, it, it'll be important, it'll be important 300 years from now. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I love my, it's one of my prized possessions. And, um, you know, we were talking before, uh, we started recording and I was lamenting the fact that I know like zero Aramaic and uh, I couldn't even imagine trying to approach the Zohar in Aramaic. Uh, and even, you know, I, we should talk a little bit about like the structure of the Zohar. So there are 24 parts, uh, some of them big, some of them small. Um, some of the uh, pretty significant parts are commentary on the Torah, which mm-hmm. is, um, which is, really interesting commentary because a lot of it times it's sort of like peppered with little side stories and myths and legends and um and a lot of the zohar is also sort of like a converse it's sort of framed as a conversation between uh the main what's the name of the the head rabbi shimon bar yochai yeah shimon bar yochai and uh nine other nine other mysterious rabbis and they're like hanging yeah, out in caves. And, yeah, yeah. And they're like traveling places and, you know, having campfires and stuff. And yeah, I, I think that when I, and again, uh, this is the way I, I sort of imagine the, the Zohar it's, it's, it, 
it, it always, and when I read it, it, it looks like a Western movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just like a, I think, I think it's like spaghetti mysticism where it's a, a <laughs> bunch of, a bunch of guys in the, you know, the backwoods of the Galilee, uh, you know, hanging out in these like dusty alcoves and they sit down by a brook and they like, one of them just says, you know, I have, a, I have, a, I haven't, you know, I have an understanding of this text. Um, and what's interesting, right. Is that in the Zohar, um, the Zohar always says, come and see. Um, and if you're a student of the Talmud, the Talmud always says, come and hear, oh. come and listen. That's how the, the, when you, the structure of the Talmud is always come and hear, come and hear, come and hear. Right. The structure of the Zohar is always come and see. It's, it's a visual text. It's also, and, that makes me feel like, whereas the Talmud is kind of a mouth to ear, uh, reception, the Zohar is almost like experiential. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's visual. I mean, okay. Uh, I mean, when the the Zohar loves images of, and again, images is the right word, uh, of light, mm-hmm. of of these very vibrant, uh, these very vibrant imagery, and so, um, and so, I think that you know this. I think this this law of journalism, right? Show not tell. Mm-hmm. Um, the Zohar is a master of that. Moshe de Leon is, 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 is really trying to tap into the imagination, but not the imagination in the way that we understand the imagination now. We think of the imagination now in this sort of enlightenment idea that the imagination cooks up nonsense. It cooks up, you know, uh, Bigfoot, and it, it, it cooks up all kinds of images of things that aren't real. Um, for a medieval thinker, for a medieval thinker, the imagination is an organ. It's a sense organ. Mm-hmm. It perceives things, right? Yes. It, it, it's part of what, it's part of the active intellect. And Moshe de Leon, or the writers of the Zohar more generally, are not trying to tell you, they're trying to, they're trying to allow you to use your imagination in this medieval way of thinking to perceive truth. So it's a completely different, um, it's a, it's a completely different kind of intellection. And so this is where I think many people get the Zohar really wrong is that um, it's not an academic text. It's mm-hmm. not meant to educate you in that academic way. And nor is it, um, and nor is it a, uh, a handbook for mysticism, right? It's not like a, it's not like an Abra, Abra, it's not like something like Abraham Abelafia telling you sit down and repeat these permutations of God's names until you have an ecstatic vision. It's, it's creating a theater for your imagination for you to break through and perceive this radical truth about the nature of reality and God and etc. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I remember the, I remember the first, um, thing that I read in the Zohar actually this is something that I had been waiting for so long uh, because it wasn't until like maybe the ninth volume um, with the Idra Rabbah mm. and that this incredible like there's this incredible visionary sequence in there with like uh, I can't remember if it's a vision of God or a vision of Adam Kadman of like this floating skull head with like weird dripping dreadlocks shooting lasers out of its eyes i mean it doesn't use those words but like it's the vision right and i remember just reading it being like this isn't this isn't something that you sit and study this is something that you're supposed to like you're supposed to experience this you're supposed to build this picture in your you know 
phantasmal apparatus and and see it for yourself. You're supposed to be experiencing this. And um, and it really kind of like transformed my limited Zohar experience, just sort of seeing that and having that kind of realization for sure. That's, um, that's a really fascinating way to look at it. It's hard, you know, I mean, as much as I read about and learn about that particular uh, mode of thought and mode of um, contemplation, you know, the, the, the imaginal vision sort of thing, it's really hard to keep in mind that that's basically like their default way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is totally alien to us. It's totally, um, it's against how we are taught to think and how we're taught to uh, understand what the imagination is for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the great, uh, I think the enlightenment has left us with a lot of really important breakthroughs. I mean, I, I myself was watching the, uh, the launch of the, uh, the rocket today in awe of mm-hmm. you know, the ability of, you know, of human beings to launch us ourselves into space. Um, and I think that's something really incredible. We should hold on to that. Uh, and at the same time, I think that the enlightenment has robbed us of, of the, of the, of the power of the imagination. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of going back to medieval texts, and this is true of the Zohar, it's true of Hildegard of Bingen. It's true of, I mean, pretty much any, any medieval person, uh, is that again, they don't think of the imagination as a, something that produces images the way that Descartes would describe it. They think of the imagination as a sense organ, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it perceives. And I think that that's an interesting, it's again, it's just such a, um, it just shows, like you said, how, how much of a gap there is between us and the medieval mind. Um, and I think that we've lost something. I having, agree. I agree. I've, uh, I've actually argued that before, or I tried to explain that before. Um, but I think probably the best book about this is, uh, or that at least that I've come across is, um, Juan Culliano's, uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. He um, he does a great job, sort of outlining it. Uh, he gives lots of examples, um, and he laments it really beautifully too. He calls it something like the complete circumcision of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's a super important thing to keep in mind. But it doesn't necessarily shrink the size of the Zohar <laughs> when you once no, you no, know no. that like you still it's so intimidating to um to look at uh the size of it like how how do you even get started do you just start reading at the commentary on uh, Bereshit or or where do you jump in it's so hard right um I I will say uh, as a person who I've you know spent many years you know studying esoteric texts, you know, some of them in manuscript. I mean, I've worked directly with uh, manuscripts of, you know, necromancers manuals um, in the original manuscript, in Latin, like just looking at the actual manuscript. And I will, I will say that to this day, the Sohar remains the single most intimidating uh, esoteric text I've ever encountered. Um, so how, how, how would you start to study it? So, um, Let's think about Zohar with training wheels. Um, so again, the Zohar can be can be divided up into several different sections. Um, what scholars mostly think is the oldest section of the Zohar is a, a section of the Zohar called the Midrash Hanailam. Um, that means like the hidden Midrash. Uh, um, and 
Uh, it's interesting because one, it's written in Hebrew, mostly in Hebrew. There's a little Aramaic in there, but mostly it's written in Hebrew. And it's written in really crisp, clear Hebrew. Like if you read mm-hmm. Hebrew, it's, it's, it's not a problem to read uh, the Hebrew there. Um, it's probably the oldest section of the Zohar composed, which is interesting. If you like want to understand the, the Zohar as a chronological development, the Midrash Hanailam is the oldest strata of the, of the Zohar. Um, and I would say if for folks who want to really get into the Zohar, start there. It's not that it's not, it's not a super challenging section of the Zohar. Uh, I think it may be volume 10 of Matt's. Okay. Okay. Uh, translation. Okay. I could be wrong about that. Uh, you definitely want to fact check that. I will um, look it up for sure. Yeah. I, I, I don't have the, my Matt translations downstairs. Um, and he, he puts things in slightly different order than the traditional Zohar. Um, so Daniel Matt's version isn't the same. If you pick up a, a Zohar from a Hebrew bookstore, the, the order is not quite the same. Um, and in that section, it, it's a much easier way into the Zohar. Um, the problem with that section, though, is that the Sephirot aren't there. Oh. And again, this is what's interesting about the Zohar, right? Is that when you think about the Zohar, you think about the Sephirot, right? It's the Sephirot, the Sephirot, the Sephirot. But they're not really there in the Midrash and Ilam, which in some sense uh, means you're not getting the full Zohar experience, right? Which you're not. But it's easing you into the way that the Zohar thinks, and it's easing you into the, the methodology the Zohar uses to um, unveil itself. Okay. And so uh, and you have to get used to that method, because if you're not used to that method, this very Baroque, recursive way of thinking, if you just dive into like Idra Rabba, uh, it's like being hit over the head with a two by four. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it is. what's happening here? It's so bizarre. It is. Uh, I, that's one of the reasons I love it, though, is just because it's so, it's so bizarre. It's sort of like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy vision. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I would say my recommendation is do the Midrash on Elam, um, and then pick one of the shorter, the shorter chunks. Um, there are, there are two pretty famous little, um, uh, pericopes in the Zohar. Uh, one is called Yanuka, the child. Uh, and one is the other one is called the Sava, the old man. Um, both of these are great because they're both instances in which um, a child and an old man, a donkey driver, actually, um, the rabbis uh, don't think that the child and the old man understand anything. Mm-hmm. And then they both, the child and the old man school, the rabbis. Um, ah. And so there's, there's this great inversion, right? And the Zohar loves inversions. Um, and so there's this inversion where this like young child who, you know, Yanuka in Aramaic is, I mean, he's probably only seven or eight years old and he's just like flooring the rabbis with his knowledge. And it's, it's a relatively short contained section. And again, like now you're beginning to get into the, the, not just the logic and the methodology of the Zohar, but the actual Sephirotic system itself. Um, and then after that, you can really jump into, uh, the, the longer, uh, the longer sections of uh, analysis within the Zohar. Uh, and then I would work your way up to the Idrot, the assembly text, which mm-hmm. is, you mentioned the Idra Rabbah. There's also the Idra Zutra, the small assembly. Um, and then if you're really brave, by the end of it all, you could uh, try on the what is without a doubt the most complicated um, uh, uh, 
sections uh, of the Zohar that are, you know, practically impenetrable. Um, uh, the Sifra de Tzniuta, uh, it's a relatively short section. Uh, it's probably only four pages, three pages in the original Aramaic, but it's considered the most important section mystically for the entire Zohar. So I would do those last, um, which is ironic because when the Zohar was translated into Latin, uh, they picked the most obscure parts <laughs> to translate into Latin. So the famous uh, Kabbalah uh, Denudata. Right. Uh, um, Christian Knorr von Rosenroth. Rosenroth, yeah. Von yeah, Rosenroth, yeah. And actually, most practitioners of like uh, ceremonial magic will be familiar with this because, um, was it Mathers? It was Mathers who translated it into English as the yeah. Kabbalah Unveiled. Unveiled, yeah. yeah. And that's what Kabbalah Denudata, yeah. The Kabbalah made not naked. It's, it's yeah. one of these great. <laughs> like it's funny in, in Latin, you can you can do double negatives. There's no problem in Latin with double negatives. So it just means the not naked Kabbalah, um, <laughs> de, de nudata, uh, uh, and uh, the texts that they chose to translate for that section are primarily the Idrot and the Sifra de Tzniuta, which are without a doubt the most obscure uh, obscure sections. And 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 uh, I can't say the translation in Latin is that great. And Mather's translation is well, it's only as good as the original. So. Yeah, I've looked at it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's awesome advice. Actually, that sort of that sort of gives like a really clear, easy jumping off point. Um, so one of the things that I've also done, I don't really have to do this very often, but um, when I'm writing about, uh, I do a lot of writing about Freemasonry, and when you write yeah. about Freemasonry, there's typically a lot of um, Old Testament references mm -hmm. and uh, and not being a biblical scholar um, I don't have any the only commentary on any Bible stuff that I have in my house is the Zohar so I've actually mm -hmm. used it as sort of like commentary I've sort of been like yeah. I want to know what other people thought about this so I've gone and used the Zohar for that for sort of like a reference um, which a lot of times is super confusing <laughs> yeah. but but also sometimes you just come across these really beautiful little tidbits and so i kind of have enjoyed you know kind of like dipping my toe into various portions of the zohar just to you know get get a sample of stuff and one of the nice things about it is uh it's beautiful like a lot of it is just really yeah amazingly put and together you, and, and if you ever get the chance to hear it uh, being read out loud uh the original aramaic is actually is absolutely gorgeous mm -hmm. uh i sometimes just read the Zohar out loud just to hear it because wow. it's so, um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and, and again, to go to your point you made a, a moment ago. Um, so for instance, in the, the first volume of the Zohar and uh, there, the, the commentary on Genesis, um, they, the Zohar writers comment on the first word of the Hebrew Bible, Bereshit, right? In the mm -hmm. beginning, um, there's 60 pages of commentary in the Zohar on that word. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that they, they get into um, sort of like the origin story of the, uh, the alphabet. Yeah. Everything. And I mean, they, it's, it's amazing. They, they give every letter its own little character and its own little story. And they talk about why it was bit instead of Aleph. That was Aleph first. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it, so the, the Zohar writer is not, it's not, the writers are not afraid to, to, and again, I think that the way of thinking about, uh, Often I use the example of getting a handle on something. 
because often the Zohar is such an unwieldy text, just getting a way of handling it helps that the Zohar is not like a piece of classical music. It's not like a piece of, uh, of Beethoven where there's a, uh, a beginning, a crescendo, and an end. The Zohar is like jazz. Hmm. It, 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 you have, you know, Thelonious Monk starts a, starts a, a riff, uh, and then Coltrane picks up, and then Coltrane drops off, and then someone else picks up, and someone else drops off, and they're just riffing and riffing and riffing and riffing and riffing. Um, so it, it's not linear in that way. That's just not the way the rabbinical imagination works, and it's certainly not the way the Zohar works. It's jazz. It's improvisational. And so because it's so improvisational, and it, it relies on it, the force of the creativity to drive it, not the force of logic. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a completely different motor. Uh, and that creative motor drives the, the, like, the innovation. And one of my favorite things about the Zohar uh, is that uh, one of the ways the Zohar is incredibly creative is by not being creative at all. It's, for instance, we'll read uh, lines in the Hebrew Bible as literally as possible. <laughs> so, uh, so for instance, right, the, you know, better sheet, right? Uh, it says, don't read in the beginning. Don't read that. It doesn't say in the beginning. It says, bait, rosh, eat, right? Ba, rosh, in the head. So, in the head. So, what do we mean by in the head? <laughs> <laughs> with with kochma, with with mm-hmm. wisdom, that's how God made the world with wisdom, and so that's his first sefirot after keter. Oh man, I didn't catch right? that. I got to go back and read that again now. That's yeah, that's amazing. So, so there, the the and again, the creativity is not in them doing something, you know, super avant garde. They're like, no, just read the text, mm-hmm. read it, just read what's on the page, and they they will tell you. The Zohar will say, like, we're not doing anything fancy. We're yeah, just reading the Bible. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's super. I have to I have to think about that for a minute, which I will do later. <laughs> yeah. uh, but also, uh, again, the, the, the Aramaic of the of the Zohar, um, it's so beautiful. In fact, that in the uh, Sephardi world, in the Jewish world that primarily comes out of Spain, um, I, the night before a boy is circumcised, um, the Zohar is read out loud and sung out loud for hours. Wow. Uh, to, ward, to ward off demons. Um, and um, I've been to a couple of these, uh, these singings, uh, and often the person singing it doesn't understand it. I mean, they, they're just singing out loud what they read on the page. Um, and, uh, and part of what's interesting about the strange language of the Zohar is that uh, the writer of the Zohar, uh, when they invent words, and he's, the writers pretty, the writers are pretty uh, interested in inventing new words, they tend to invent new words using a very small set of characters, a small set of sounds, and they really like ka sounds and za sounds. Hmm. And so the and the in Aramaic, many words end in an ah sound, they end in an aleph. Um, and so you, what you get is this like droning, like carrying of the of the tune. And so the the actual reading of the Zohar when it's in Aramaic. Uh, it has this very hypnotizing droning sound to it. Uh, And so again, to go back to the previous point that I was making, the Zohar isn't meant to just be read in silence. It's an audio visual show. It says, come in here or come and see rather, right? Come and see. And when you read it out loud, it has this incredible uh, audio oral quality. So, Hmm. um, so this is a, you know, always a trouble with translation um, is that, um, the Zohar wasn't just meant to be read to be comprehended intellectually or spiritually. It was also written to be 
listen to musically. Oh, and that's that a totally so, different. That is so incredible. And that's a totally different strata of, of what this text is doing. I have to share a parallel with a, an interview that I just did with, um, with Ted Hand. And we were talking about the Hypnoromachia polyphily. Yeah. And um, what a great title. <laughs> oh, I love the title. <laughs> it took me like 10 years of practicing to be able to say it that casually. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah it, it is absolutely a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he was comparing uh, that text to um, the Atalanta Fugians. Fugians, yeah. And he yeah, was yeah. saying, like, these are, these are, these are things that are meant to be like multimedia experiences. You absolutely. don't, you don't just read the book. You, you know, you, you visualize it and experience the visions of it. You, you know, uh, uh, Adelante Fugians has um, music. Yeah. yeah music all the music. I've been learning yeah. to play some of it. It is weird music. Yeah. Um, weird music. Yeah. yeah. But that's been, uh, it's, uh, it's just a great synchronicity that you're bringing up that sort of experience with the Zohar as well. Uh, I will have to find some recordings of that. That sounds really amazing. Yeah. It's, it's again, um, and again, uh, you know, as, as Sholem pointed out famously, and as I think has been reinforced by later scholarship, um, the language of the Zohar is, 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 an, is an idiolect, is what we would call it in linguistics. It's a completely artificial language. Um, and one way of reading that is that the writers of the Zohar were, well, untrained or stupid or, or they were uh, bumbling around. And that was, a, that was actually an idea that was floated, in the, especially in the 19th century, uh, that the the Zohar that the language of the Zohar was um, inept at some level, hmm. and I, I think that's completely false. I think what seems to be very obvious is that the writers of the Zohar were very intentionally creating a linguistic experience, um, precisely to convey a kind of oral quality with the text, and so. Um, so when I read the Zohar, when I read the Zohar and study it, I, I, when I'm studying in Aramaic, um, I read it out loud. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's not enough to understand it because that's not the whole message. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. So in, in the same way that I think, again, like um, when, when one reads something like the Iliad, the Odyssey, right? Um, if you've never had the chance to hear the Iliad read aloud in, in Greek, well, that's that was the whole point. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it was an it was an oral text. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a more modern. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is recent enough for people to have actually experienced it. But um, you know, Ginsburg's Howl. Yeah. You know, you can read it on the page, but you are not getting the experience until you've heard Ginsburg yelling it. No. You no, know? it's yeah. Again, I think it. I think, and I think that part of what the Zohar does is it gives the lie. Uh, to the idea that books are literature, mm -hmm. um, it's much more than literature. It's it's a, and I think again, multimedia experience is the right is the right phrase. Um, the Zohar is 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 creating a world, and they want it invites you to come live in its world, uh, and it is repulsive. It is pushing you away. It is creating a barrier that says, look, yeah, we're we're going to write this text in a super complicated way. We're going to write it in a very difficult language. We're going to write these ideas that are incredibly complicated. And yet, right, we're publishing it. Mm -hmm. We want you. We're inviting you into a conversation that we know you're not ready for. <laughs> um, and so, and and I think this is what's great about every sort of uh, mystical text uh, is that it creates this tension that is both alluring 
and also says, you know, keep your distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I think that's true. Everything from some text by Jakob Burma. Uh, I even see that in something like the book of the law by Alistair Crowley. Um, that's inviting and disinviting at the same time. Um, and the Zohar certainly does that work, I think, very effectively, uh, which is, I think, why people, unfortunately, you know, don't study it much in the original language. Or, um, Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, even, tough. yeah, I mean, Aramaic itself, uh, I, I honestly can't even think of another Aramaic text. You know, I mean, a lot of languages, when you look at them, you're like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, learn enough of this language that I can read something. I can't even think of anything else in Aramaic that I'd want to go after right now. I think there's a big literature that, uh, that if you read Aramaic, the, the big literature, especially from an esoteric point of view that really opens up to you is the Mandean scriptures. Oh, okay. Man- okay. Mandeans of course are, uh, the only surviving Gnostic religion, mm-hmm. um, you know, surviving from antiquity. Um, uh, so the Mandeans, uh, their, their, their religious texts, including the Ginza Rabbah, their major text. Uh, are written in a dialect of Aramaic that's actually identical, effectively identical, written in a different script. The, the Mandeic script is different, uh, but it's effectively the same language as uh, the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, so wait, is Babylonian um, Talmud in Aramaic? It's in Aramaic. Oh, I probably yeah. should have already known that. Well, it's in Aramaic. <laughs> uh, so uh, and so, I think I think a text that again, like it's funny to me, right? That the Nagamati library gets all the attention and people are really interested in Gnosticism. And I always like, you know, bang, I bang my drum and say, they're Gnostics. They're still around. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, like you, you can, you know, um, and they're persecuted. And I think it's also important that we protect them. Uh, these mm-hmm. are people that were systematically persecuted by Saddam Hussein and whose habitat had been totally destroyed during the American invasion of, of Iraq. And, um, I'm like, if you love Gnosticism so much, keep the Protect Gnostics alive. Them. Yeah, <laughs> they, they need yeah. they're 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 a profound minority that that need, you know, people people that appreciate Gnosticism and esotericism. Well, you know, they're 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 there and yeah, but yeah. So at least Aramaic would open that that door. You have to learn the Mandean script, but it's not it's not a it's not a difficult script to learn, and uh, you would have access to uh, to their to to Gnostic to 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 living Gnostic scriptures. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds like a worthwhile thing to study. And besides, what's another alphabet? Hey, yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you, uh, once you've got like six of them in your head. <laughs> yeah, they. Um, but you know, I, I, again, the the, Zoh- the Aramaic of the Zohar is is super complicated. I won't I won't deny it. Uh, but uh, I would say that you know, after three semesters of of college level Hebrew. Use that's when you take Aramaic. Um, almost all Aramaic is studied as it how as it's different than Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you almost always you have to master Hebrew first, and then you do Aramaic. Um, and once you've gotten some Aramaic, um, you have to then you have to tackle the Zohar. Okay. Well, but uh, I guess I know what I'm going to be doing for the next three years. <laughs> it it is a pain in the ass i'm not gonna lie uh i find that the aramaic of the zohar is is uh it's a mess um it's a mess it's really hard uh they you know the writers uh like they make up words just words that just don't exist they make up words um and 
when they can't make up a word in Aramaic, they just use an old Spanish word. And so sometimes, <laughs> so sometimes you'll be reading along and I'll, there'll be a line in, in, in Aramaic. Uh, and I'm like, what the hell is this word? And I'm like reading it out. I'm trying to parse it out loud in my head. Cause you know, there's no, there's no vowels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, matronita. I'm like, Oh, matronita. That's not Aramaic. That's just Spanish. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just Spanish. Um, um, and so the Shina, the, 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 the feminine aspect of God sometimes gets referred to as a matronita. The lady. Yeah. And so, yeah, the little mom, because uh, she can't be God, but she's God's presence. And so, right. uh, and so you're like, Oh, that's just Spanish. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'm going to take note of that. Matronita. Yeah. The matronita. Run into that next time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have a really dumb question to ask and then i would like to shift to talking a little bit about some more about zohar history so my really dumb question is and i was just thinking about this when i read your introduction you have a phd in philosophy doesn't it feel weird to say that you have a phd in philosophy when phd means doctor of philosophy yeah yeah i always tell my my students right that the that uh that PhD, uh, this means doctor of philosophy. Um, so even if you get a degree in engineering, you've only taken intro philosophy, you're still a doctor of philosophy, just you're a doctor of philosophy and engineering. Um, yeah, you know, there's a, uh, there's a part of me that just like these medieval ways of thinking about education, they need to go. I just think that they're, they're not mm-hmm. doing us a lot of, they're, they're not really doing us a lot of service. Like, uh, you know, all this like, uh, there are people out there that know a lot about transmissions and they don't get a fancy title. Oh yeah. And they're for sure. They're really important. And so, um, you know, the only thing I think I would keep is I think I've heard in the, in Finland, when you get a PhD, they give you a sword. Okay. I think that would be worth it. I would, so I'm like, if I got a sword out of the deal, I'll be okay with it. But yeah, especially if it was yeah. a real sword, like they, they actually made I think, you, I think it's a, I think it's a real sword. I think it's, I think they're not kidding around. Um, so get your, get your PhD in Finland. Uh, at least you get a sword out of the deal. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, 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 the reason why I got the, the, the degree in philosophy, um, is that, um, for me as a person who's really interested in Western esotericism and really interested in these texts as part of our intellectual history, is that um, these texts have been actively suppressed. Like, there's just no doubt. If you go back and look at, for instance, how the canon of philosophy was developed and who gets to be a philosopher and who doesn't, there's a reason why you don't, like, you could literally get a PhD in philosophy and never hear about Ficino. Like, I will tell you that's possible because that literally happens to everyone I know. There, I, I, I really need one of those swords now. <laughs> yeah. I, so, that is so fascinating to me. How is that? How would you not, how would you get a PhD in anything that has to do with Western thought and not know anything about Ficino? That seems impossible. Because it's just, it's, and again, this is to Walter Hanegraaff's point, it's rejected knowledge. It's knowledge that's not thought of as, as valid. Um, And and again, it gets worse, right? Like I, uh, for instance, when I got my PhD, I had to take an exam in classical philosophy and modern philosophy. There was literally not a single class offered in medieval philosophy. 
what? entire time I was in graduate school. So I could, I literally went through all of graduate school and I was never required to take even a class in medieval philosophy. What about, so like no Aquinas? No. 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 Dunsko does nothing. None of that. It, it, it's as if it didn't, it's, it's as if philosophy began and then it ended with the Stoics and it picked back up with Descartes. So if you're not getting a class, and if you're not getting, and again, this is the graduate level. If you're getting, if you're, and this is not, this is totally not unusual in the Amer especially the American academic uh, philosophical world. If you're not getting classes in Duns Scotus and, and Thomas Aquinas, you're not getting classes in Ficino. Wow, that's that's extra depressing. It's so my so, my um my dumb question uh, uncovered a lot of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a real systemic problem. Yeah. And so for me, as a, as a philosopher, I, I, I just have no, I have no patience for that kind of misreading of history and for that kind of like uh, active, you know, this active desire just to not, it's philosophers being stupid mm -hmm. and not being historical. And I just don't have any patience for that. And um, when someone wants to, um, you know, talk about the history of philosophy. And I'm like, yeah, we need to be reading Iamblichus. We need to be reading Ficino. We need to be reading Jakob Burma. We need to, like, do, like, do people who get PhDs in philosophy not read Iamblichus? No. <sighs> He's utterly unread. Wow. Uh, and I, and I, I talked to one of my comp professors when I was in graduate school, and I was like, we need to be reading Otega and Swedenborg and Burma. And he was like, no, we don't. Like, those people are, like, one, he didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. And he was like, and I was like, well, Kant read them. <laughs> but Kant wrote a whole book on them. Like, just, you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. Like, Kant, who you think is, you know, the god of philosophy or whatever, you dedicated your whole life to being a scholar of Kant. Kant thought Jakob Berman and Ertiga were so important to write a book on them. Mm -hmm. So... So it's 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 yeah. it's, just, it's it's this real schizophrenic attitude uh, to these philosophers that I, I find it, it's 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 uh it's just not actually doing philosophy. That I think non-Cartesian philosophy stuff is um, is kind of a threat to uh the is kind of a threat to Descartes. Like it it can kind of shatter your understanding of Descartes. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, I always remember back to the first time I encountered um, Plato. You know, I mean, I'd heard the name, of course, but mm -hmm. when somebody explained to me, uh, you know, sort of, you know, Plato's, somebody gave me the chair story, you know. Mm -hmm. Imagine a chair, <laughs> right. or the perfect chair. And I just remember sort of thinking about this and being like, how does that even... You know why would anybody ever think that? I couldn't. I couldn't picture in my head why anybody would ever consider that to be a valid point of view. And you know, even you know, Plato's sort of approach to you know his sort of like emanationist sort of stuff is also kind of rejected knowledge. I f I always feel like it's treated as a uh, historical oddity rather than something that was. Rather than something that is still kind of integral to the way we look at stuff, it's still sort of integral to the way we categorize things and that we're taught to think about things. But we just can't. It's hard to. It's hard for somebody who's never encountered Plato to wrap your head around around the fact that that's something that was like foundational to our thought. And then the way Plato's interpretation, um, or the interpretation of Plato, 
uh, developed and ended up becoming all of these strange or beautiful, um, you know, schools of thought, you know, the, the middle Platonists and the Neoplatonists oh, God, yeah. and sure. yeah. Or that, or that, you know, that, uh, when Plato's taught and I teach Plato now in my intro philosophy classes and, uh, and I've learned Plato at, at you know, at, at the graduate level and what they don't tell you, right. Is that Plato himself will gladly tell you that you cannot gain real knowledge rationally. Mm-hmm. You gain it through what he calls mania madness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Socrates has this daimon he speaks to and oh, yeah. you know so again the there's there's and i and i think i said this in one of my videos um uh, on uh on esoterica is that with the way we tell history is more about reinforcing a delusion we have about ourselves mm-hmm. than it is about telling history oh yeah like we have this we have this delusional belief that we're now rational enlightened logical analytical modern people um that's not true and it probably shouldn't be true oh for that's sure not so I, so i again i think that for me again right when i when i teach philosophy and when i work in philosophy and when i and i think about these topics i, I read these topics uh in esotericism like the zohar and other texts like you know the texts that i, I work on in my esoteric philosophy not because it's esoteric philosophy because it's just philosophy yeah that's like, I, I, I think a good way to approach it I, I i just don't yeah it's again like this really weird belief that like uh and i think that again like for modern practitioners and not to be critical of modern practitioners many of them think of themselves as inheriting an esoteric tradition but the reality was it wasn't that esoteric like astrology was a university taught course in the middle ages astrology is is baked into um it's baked into the way we talk about the world still. I mean, sure, you know, absolutely. Heck, the days of the week. Yeah, or you know, alchemy. We talk about something being hermetically sealed. Oh yeah. Uh, um, so, again, uh, for me as a person who wants to work on this material, um, I it's not that I want to work on esoteric philosophy or occult philosophy. I just want to work on philosophy, and when I want to work on philosophy, that means for me at least, it means I want to prioritize voices that don't get heard. Uh, and, 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 and the chorus of voices that don't get heard, especially in, in the Western philosophic tradition, um, are people, you know, again, people that Ficino, people like John D, people like Jamblichus, uh, people like Austin Osman Spar, mm-hmm. just these great geniuses. Oh, beautiful um, thinkers too. Like beautiful yeah. thinkers, incredible communicators, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it almost so, like it, it feels like uh, the fact that we that we don't teach those the fact that those that sort of knowledge tends to be rejected or suppressed um, it limits uh, creativity like it limits our ability to I feel like it it tells us that we don't necessarily have like a license to uh, explore our thoughts in the way that we want to yeah and yeah, and also, I mean, this is this is an episode I'm going to do on esoterica here. I think probably next week or the week after. Is that, for instance, right? Descartes um, is a classic example here. Descartes, the founder of so-called rationalism, um, rationalism only gets started because Descartes has a dream in which a spirit being tells him the truth. What? Yeah, is, oh, and, <laughs> that, that, and I, I'm not kidding you. That is actually in the earliest biographies of Descartes. 
and it's in a now lost work of Descartes. Descartes uh, is when he was working as a mercenary, which also doesn't get told how many like philosophers were actually mercenaries. Uh, Cornelius Agrippa was a mercenary. Yeah, I was just about to bring him up. <laughs> we know Agrippa was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have these like uh, you know again, it's it's before philo- like Plato was a wrestler, right? Plato, mm-hmm. his name, right? It means uh, broad-shouldered. Broad, yeah, broad, yeah, broad-shouldered. It's it's before philosophers had figured out they have to be like bookish nerds. They were like, I'm going to be a wrestler or a mercenary. It's like I just I always imagine like it's like the guys from Predator like hanging out fighting Predator and then going back home being like, all right, I'm going to write a book on occult philosophy or whatever. <laughs> Um, it's like uh, Sylvester Stallone being your um, philosophy being, teacher. Your philosophy, and so, <laughs> and so they have they haven't figured out they can't be like that. Um, but yeah, uh, the earliest uh, documents we have about Descartes' breakthrough um, is this dream he has. He has a dream vision, right? He's 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 incubated, and he has the cycle of three dreams, and these three dreams ultimately avail him this whole project to him. Uh, and then if you actually look at his work. He just writes and rewrites the exact same book over and over and over again through his entire career. He's a man obsessed. Yeah. He's a man driven by a vision, a, a mystical vision. And that mystical vision becomes rationalism. Ah, oh, oh my God. It was the mystical vision that murdered mystical visions. It's, <sighs> it, it, and, and again, if you tell the story, I was in a Descartes seminar in graduate school and I was like, this shit all just came from mysticism. And they're like, you know, they just like, oh, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, yeah, you know, the power of Christ compels you. Like, you can't, I was like, no, I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not saying it, it's, it's, it's whatever. I'm saying we should just be honest. Mm-hmm. We should just call a spade a spade and be like, you know, if, if, if it is rationalism, great. If it leads us to a place of rationalism, modernity, great. If it, if it's mysticism, that's fine too. I don't want to close the door on the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just not. I'm just not going to do that. Um, that as a philosopher, that feels like a betrayal of what I'm charged to do. Oh yeah, I mean, um, it's right in the name. You are supposed yeah. to be a lover of wisdom, and that means of, you know you got to love it all. Love it all, and again, let's go back to the the question of the Zohar. Uh, you know, when I when I I'll be at a, a conference or something, and I will be making an argument, and I'll quote something like the Zohar. And someone will, you know, raise their hand and they'll, they'll say, you know, what does a medieval mystical text have to do with this question about ethics or whatever? And I'm like, it has as much to do with the truth as anything else has to do with the truth. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not playing favorites. I'm not here to, um, I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to tell the truth. And guess what the truth typically does? It typically makes us pretty uncomfortable. It does. God, I wish I wish we had uh, like ten more hours to talk, because I want to ask you about. I mean, what I really want to ask you about is the the acceptance of the Zohar in in medieval Judaism. Like, mm-hmm. it came about. It seemed to spread pretty quickly, uh, but there was already there were already schools of mysticism that were in existence, including stuff that kind of got. Uh, swallowed up by what became Kabbalah, like Abraham Abelafia. But then you also had like um, Maimonides and his um, his weird un-Kabbalah stuff. And you had uh, like the Merkava tradition. And what was the other one? The Hekelot? It was the same, really. It's okay. just two names of the same thing. But um, you had all of these different things going on. How did the Zohar start to win? Like how did it... Uh, 
you know, you, you described Kabbalah as sort of like the reaction to the Zohar. And you can right. see, you know, it doesn't take, you know, most people are fairly familiar. I mean, most people who, who are familiar with Kabbalah know about Lurianic Kabbalah, you know, with the the really orderly three-columned tree of life sort of thing, which right. also, I'm super curious, like, ugh, I have so many questions about this. <laughs> I've been reading Chaim Vital, uh, and uh, that's difficult stuff too, but um, even in even in the early stuff with Lurianic Kabbalah, you still don't get like the three-pillared tree of life. You get this sort of, the nested spheres that sort of mirrors like yeah. the Ptolemaic cosmology sort of stuff. Right, absolutely. Um, in fact, the earliest image we have of the Sephirot is from uh, Moshe Kurdavera's part of Remo meme, in which it's actually a nested system, a nested series of, of letters. Oh yeah, the letters. I was just looking at that and I was very it's confused. The, it's, in, it's in the Gershom Shulman book that you just uh, showed earlier. That must be where I just saw it. I yep. just was looking at it for a moment, and I was very confused because each letter is supposed to be the first letter of the um, of the sephira right. that it's associated with. So you've got you know the the mem in the middle, and then the letter around the mem is a tzadi. It's tzadi, yeah, because it's it's uh, and again, this just shows you the dynamism of what's going on in early Kabbalah is that um, that even the names of the sephirot aren't settled yet, right? Um, and so Keter, like so Keter, Keter being the top, Malchut being the bottom, Malchut isn't standardized. None of them are standardized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, it's not until Chaim Vital, that's not even true really either, because there was an entirely different school of Kabbalah that was Lurianic Kabbalah that was not the Vital school that was done by a guy named Israel Sarug. Oh. Um, and so there's, sometimes when people say like, do you study Kabbalah? I'm like, yeah, which one? Like, there's, you know. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but the short story with the reception of the of, of of the Zohar is that it looks like it at least early on through the 14th century the Zohar was contained completely within uh, southern France and Spain. We don't have manuscripts anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what ends up happening in that time period is that the noose is beginning to tighten on the Jews living in Spain. Um, and they are increasingly forced into this situation where uh, it's sort of converter leave, right? And that reaches its apex, of course, in 1492 when you have the mass expulsion of Jews mm-hmm. um, uh, in 1492. What you're beginning to get is that um, is, is, is two things. The first thing is that many of the more philosophically inclined Jews uh, at the time, they're mindset is one in which look god is an abstract entity right so think about the aristotle god right god sort of the the grand architect of the universe mm-hmm. their position is look is god is a grand architect of the universe we're not totally feel inter- intellectually wed to like one way of doing it and i'm a rich doctor and i'm i'm not leaving <laughs> right like we're staying and we're converting mm-hmm. and we can we can still believe in our God in all the ways we want to, and we're going to be Catholic, right? right? And so th- there, there's a kind of, I don't want to say capitulation because these people are under, these people are under a kind of stress we can't imagine. They survive. They're survivors, right? right. So it's not, it's not about capitulation. They have to survive in a way that makes sense to them. So there's a philosophic wing of this that's, that says conversion is fine because ultimately Christians, Jews, Muslims, we all believe in the same God. 
So they're just not that concerned about the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also they want to keep their livelihood and they don't want to suffer immensely, which I, you know, I can't blame them at all. I think there's a lot of hatred that goes against people who do that kind of stuff. And I'm like, look, none of us, I've never been in a situation like that. Um, as that begins to happen, the folks in the Zoharic world really double down. They're like, no, the, the, the Judaism in a very strict way is actually essential to the reparation of the cosmos itself. This is the idea of tikkun olam, the reparation of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the most irrational laws in Judaism are in fact the most important, right? So putting on tefillin, uh, not keeping uh, clothing made of uh, wool and cotton. In the Zohar, those are the most important laws in the the Bible. Hmm. Uh, And to this day, by the way, Hasidic Judaism, if you uh, ever walk around in New York and there's a guy there in a black hat and a black suit and he's asking if you're a Jewish, did you put tefillin on the day? He wants to put tefillin on you. These are the black boxes that contain the, the, right. the scripture. Uh, he's, he's wanting to put those on a Jew because the idea goes all the way back to the Zohar that tefillin are the most important laws in the Bible and those will actually bring like immediate redemption. Wow. And so it's motivated by that. And so part of what happens, right, is that the hardcore Jews who are all about the Zohar stay in Spain and they are not willing to convert and eventually they're exiled. And where do they get exiled to? They go to the, the they go to their homeland and their homeland, of course, is the land of Shimon Bar Yochai and all the people that he's, uh, he's oriented around. They go to Tzfat in Northern Israel and they establish the Kabbalistic community there. And eventually that's where Isaac Luria and Chaim Vital will eventually flourish. Hmm. So it's the actual, what actually, and it's one more part of the story, what makes the Zohar spread is actually the, the expulsion of Jews from Spain and eventually the movement of Shabbatai Tzvi. Um, right, and that was the 1600, wait, Shabbatai yeah. Tzvi was 1600s, right? Like late that's right. So Shabbatai Tzvi uh, converted to Islam in 1666. Okay. Um, and the so year he was active. <laughs> yeah, the year the year that you know uh, that uh, Newton discovered uh, the laws of motion, the laws mm-hmm. of optics and light, and all that. The year of miracle, um, which is funny, also right that we call the year in which the fundamental theory of light, calculus, and the fundamental laws of nature, we still call it the year of miracles. Yeah. Right. Like it's still religious. I just love this this weird tension between like science and, uh, and, and magic. Oh, I mean, like, and Newton, you know, just even Newton brings up a whole new ball. Oh, of, of course. Wrote a million words about alchemy. <laughs> uh, he, he oh, wrote, I mean, uh, his whole stuff about the, the temple of Solomon. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he wrote uh, five times more about uh, alchemy than he did about physics and mathematics. Yeah. And he was probably oh. a total jerk. Oh, he was an asshole. Yeah. I mean, he was I mean that liar. all the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. He he was a psychopath. I, I really think he would be diagnosed he, as a. He was probably diagnosable. Yeah, um, uh, sounds like it. But I mean, he stuck yeah, so a freaking thing in his own eyeball. Yeah, he was a weird. <laughs> okay, well, that's a whole different. That's a that's a whole new chest of horrors to open up there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, so then, uh, so uh, Tzvi helped spread the Zohar. Right. You think? Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? So, uh, as you know, right, uh, uh, Shabbatite Tzvi's claims to being the Messiah were were very popular. More oh, yeah. than half, 
more than half of the world's Jews converted to Shabbatianism. Wait, that many? Oh, yeah. Like, the data seems to indicate that Jews as far away as um, North America and Brazil were, like, ready to go. They, they were converted to Shabbatianism. I so did Shabbat- not realize the numbers are that big. That's, that's yeah. crazy. The, the data indicates that Shabbatianism probably converted about half of the world's Jews for at least two years uh, to his cause. Wow. And so what's interesting about Shabbatianism is that uh, Shabbatianism rode, Shabbatianism worked because it referenced the Zohar. He, he defended his claims to be the Messiah. Back up. His main prophet, Nathan of Gaza, Mm-hmm. defended Shabbatai's Messiah claim using the Zohar. The Seriously? Zohar was their proof text. So that was their proof text. In fact, there's no evidence at all that Shabbatai's V knew any other Jewish mysticism other than Zohar. He didn't know anything about Isaac Luria or any of that. Huh. Um, he just knew Zohar. He, but he memorized it. He had it. He had it memorized. He really knew Zohar. He could speak Zohar. Are you um, kidding? That's... Oh, yeah. I mean, he, Shabbatai's V was an, it's an incredible person. Um, so what's interesting is, as if you, if you think about the tide of Shabbatite's V going in, he brought with him the Zohar and when the tide of him came out, he left the Zohar behind. Hmm. And so when he, when ultimately his, uh, his Messianic claim broke down beginning in 1666, when he converted to Islam, what, le- what got left behind was the idea that, Hey, look, we're not so sure about this Shabbatite's V guy, but this Zohar thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's and it's at that point, by the way, that when you begin to see the classical prohibitions on studying Kabbalah, you have to be forty, you have to be married, you have to have kids, blah 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 blah. Uh, those restrictions only actually come after the whole disaster with Shabbatai Tzvi, mm-hmm. um, and so um, so Shabbatianism spread Zohar, uh, and I would say it, it's it's Shabbatianism that spread Zohar. Uh, and not only spread it, but actually canonized it. And I would say that that Zohar is a, now a Jewish scripture, on par with Torah, Talmud, Midrash, Zohar. It, That's crazy. So much, so much so that the Zohar actually affects um, uh, halachot. It affects um, Jewish law. Um, um, huh. Yeah. So even Jewish law can be decided on the on the strength of Zohar. The most famous case being whether or not one can wear tefillin during uh, uh, Passover. So during Passover, there's an intermediary period where you're allowed to do work. Um, and the question is, during the intermediary period, is it still holiday or not? If it is holiday, you can't wear tefillin. But if it isn't holiday, you can you can wear tefillin. The Zohar says it is holiday and you can wear tefillin. And so Hasidic Jews to this day wear tefillin during that period on the strength of the argument made in the Zohar. Wow. And so, when you want to, if you want to think about Jewish, if you want to think about scripture from a Jewish point of view, there is no more powerful way of thinking about scripture than thinking about the ability to 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 make law, mm-hmm. like Torah, like Torah. Right. And the Zohar is Torah. That is, I honestly did not know that. I mean, you kind of hinted at it a little earlier when you're talking about the the uh, Sephardi singing the Zohar during the, the yeah. That's... Yeah. The night before a, 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 a uh, the night before a circumcision. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. That's something I yeah. honestly, I did not know that at all. I guess I, I also didn't realize that um, 
that uh, Tzvi was so uh, instrumental and influential in that way. Um, so, so then he, so when, when Tzvi sort of, when his influence started to fade, the Zohar stuck around. And so in a way that means that like the mysticism of Kabbalah is almost kind of baked into modern Judaism in some ways, like absolutely huh well absolutely yeah absolutely i mean i would say that the i would say that the default theology of judaism is kabbalah huh that's really fascinating it kind of really makes me think that um all of the other uh western middle eastern religions are really getting the shaft since they all have to have like boring religion (laughs) i mean I, i i again i think that uh again i think that you know i I mean, I would say that, so sometimes uh, my, my partner is a, is a rabbi uh, and she uh, sometimes uh, will have uh, people who want to convert to Judaism talk to me. Um, and sometimes I have, you know, Catholic folks who want to convert to Judaism. And I'm mm-hmm. like, why would you do that? Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, it's just mystical and Judaism is this. And Judaism is like, what are you talking about? Yeah, but Catholicism like, is like, yeah, but okay. So you know, you have the Counter Reformation, which sure. which you know cut off one of Catholicism's legs, and then you have like Vatican II, which cut off the other one. And sure, it's a lot of problems. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's one of we were like, I always tell them like, you know, your task is not to your task might not be to to jump ship. Your task might be to you know go you know go read Heidegger, yeah. uh, you know, or you know whatever like. Um, like reverse yeah, the damage yeah. that has been done to your religion. <laughs> Something I, I, I mean, I just, I find, you know, I, I read the, at least the Catholicism I read, I'm just like bowled over. I read someone like Meister Eckhart and I'm just like, you know, you know, you like, uh, what is it in sports? Do you do the trade thing where you trade players based on all kinds of stuff? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'll trade you a little bit of Talmud if we can get Meister Eckhart, um, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean the 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 yeah, I would say that Kabbalah is 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 certainly is 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 the official theology of Judaism at this point. Hmm. Um, um, and, and coming from the Zohar, coming with the Shekhinah, I mean it's basically, I mean again, like again, to think about the power of of Kabbalah, um, it, it invented a whole new service in Judaism. We have a whole new service uh, called Kabbalah Shabbat. It's a service in which we bring in the Sabbath. That service was completely invented by a bunch of capitalists in the in the 16th century. What, it, what, is there a way to observe to observe this or see it happen? It happens at every synagogue every Friday night. Are you kidding? Wait, have you I to, done this? You probably have. If you go to any synagogue on a Friday night, you will do Kabbalat Shabbat, and that that service was completely invented by Kabbalists. Uh, the song Lachadodi, uh, "Come My Bride," mm-hmm. it's it was invented by Shlomo Alkovitz, uh, who was, uh, I think he married Joseph Cordovero's daughter or something. They, were, okay. they had some, yeah, they were like family or whatever. Um, but no, I, like I said, Kabbalah is, 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 you know, even the idea of Tikkun Olam, you can go to the most reform, reform synagogue, and they will have a Tikkun Olam committee that will be all about social justice and trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and even the the phrase tikkun olam, uh, the idea that like you repair the world, 
uh, that has its roots in Zohar. Yeah. That you do the commandments of the Bible, not because God commands it, because God has designed the commandments to repair the world. Um, and that every time you, you do a mitzvah, every time you do a commandment, uh, you're engaging in theurgy. The, the, the Zohar is a, is a text of theurgy, and it understands Jewish law not as law for the sake of law. It understands Jewish law as theurgy. You're literally repairing the world hmm. metaphysically by observing Shabbat, by keeping kosher, by giving alms, by doing this stuff. You're not just giving, when you see a poor person, you're not just giving them money to give them money. You're literally repairing the damage, the fundamentally damaged nature of reality. So, so, um, so yeah, the Zohar is, um, the Zohar and by extension of Kabbalah, uh, I would say they've, uh, even the most liberal Jews are fundamentally doing Kabbalistic stuff on unbeknownst to them. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really fascinating. You know, I wish we had, uh, a fireplace and some snifters of brandy and uh, and all night to talk about this stuff i i the, this is really like i we we only scratched the surface here i'm i'm extremely grateful for the like zohar getting started advice and extremely grateful for all this other stuff that you've shared uh you know I'm, and i'm really glad that you're a teacher that makes me super happy i i envy your students i hope that they uh i hope that they appreciate how lucky they are and the rest of us get to at least experience your YouTube channel. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I, yeah. I hope folks check it out. And and I'm and again, I'm 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 totally happy to uh, hear what folks are interested in uh, and and tailor it to the audience. That sounds amazing. So. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So you've got your YouTube channel. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And is there any other place people can find you online? Yeah, they can find me at my website. Uh, it's just uh, justinsledge.com. Uh, I take questions there. I uh, am really happy to reach out to folks and uh, and, and have conversations about this stuff uh, as best I can. So, All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and, um, and for doing all this work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm just... You know, there's something about this whole uh, community of folks who are having these conversations um, that I just think are, um, we're undoing a lot of damage. I think so too. And it's really lovely to see. And it's great to see when like new ideas and new stuff starts coming out of it and people start sharing more and being more open with not only their experience, but what they've learned and even like traditions that they've been exposed to that maybe they weren't going to be talking about before yeah it's it's pretty amazing it's great yeah so, all right absolutely on. thank you for listening to the arnamancy podcast you can find me online at arnamancy.com where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the arnamancy blog you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or your favorite podcatcher if you like this podcast support it for just one dollar a month through patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy